The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her, her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus, the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Well, I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's common during the season of Advent to talk about waiting. Though typically we talk about waiting in the sort of big picture ways of anticipating Christmas, the Christmas celebration, and also waiting in the sense of living our lives mindfully that one day Jesus will come again and judge all of us for what we've done and whether we've followed him. But today I want to suggest that just as important as this sort of macro, big picture waiting is, just as important as that is the ability to wait in a more micro way, to wait amidst the challenging situations that arise from day to day in our lives, the sort of situations where we have little control over them. We have where the outcomes are uncertain. So we might call this micro-waiting, or that's the word I've made up, micro-waiting. Kind of like micro-waving, but not. <laughs> By micro-waiting, what I mean is being able, having the ability to live in some tension in our daily lives. To live in some tension while these challenging situations that confront us, that may confront us from day to day, while they're unresolved, responding to them slowly rather than quickly and reactively, being able to still choose love in how we respond instead of acting in fear. 
In a world that's always changing, we are constantly faced with situations where outcomes are uncertain, with circumstances where we have little to no or control. And we have the 24-hour news cycle constantly telling us that some of these uncertain outcomes are absolutely going to lead to worse things than we're experiencing now. They tell us that, so we'll keep tuning in, and it often works. But not just on that front. You know, just for me personally for a moment, as a parent, you know, I constantly find that things are changing. You know, right when I think I've just started to figure out how to be a dad of kids ages zero to seven, I wake up today and have an eight-year-old. And I can genuinely say that I have zero experience parenting an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old. So there's uncertainty there. There's things I don't have control over, things that are new. But in addition to that, all of us have hopes, for example, about what our lives are supposed to be like, about how things should turn out. We carry around expectations of certain important people to us in our lives. Perhaps in this season, we carry around expectations of what Christmas celebrations are supposed to be like. And as we are all too aware, sometimes expectations are met, sometimes they're even exceeded, but other times our expectations are dashed, disappointed. So when we are facing such situations that have uncertain outcomes or where we lack control, it's natural then for us to feel emotional discomfort, whether anxiety or fear. And our impulse is often to respond to that, those uncomfortable feelings in ways that will bring relief to those feelings, relieve the tension, right? Our sin wants to live anywhere but in tension, Right? Rather than being willing to live in it, we, we may have a tendency to reject the hand we feel like we're being dealt or to try to get to, back to a place where we feel certainty or control. And yet God does not intend for his people to respond in these ways when we experience such tension. At least he doesn't mean for us to respond in a way that might be at the expense of loving others or being faithful to his commands. The good news, though, is that God wants to instill in us a capacity to engage the challenging situations of our daily lives in a manner that is still loving toward others and trusting in God. And yet what may surprise you is that brain science, probably wouldn't plan on hearing those words, Brain science shows we can't cultivate this kind of character and faith on our own as individuals. Instead, it shows that only by participating in community that is joyfully centered upon the story of God revealed in Scripture can we really begin to cultivate these capacities to do what I'm calling micro-waiting, to engage the challenging situations in our daily lives with character and faith and not with impulsiveness and reactivity. 
This morning, our gospel passage from Matthew features the person of Joseph. And while every human character in the Bible other than Jesus is, of course, flawed, like all of us, it's interesting that both the Joseph in the Old Testament and this Joseph in the New Testament, they sort of stand out for the level of character that they show and for the enormous difference that character makes in how their lives actually play out. That their choices, their responses matter. In today's passage, as we heard, Joseph learns he's going to become a dad a little sooner than he probably expected. But the way he is able to respond and what comes from his response shows what difference godly faith and character can actually make, not just in how one's life plays out, but on the impact one's able to actually have for God's kingdom. Looking at the passages, verse 18 tells us, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Now, different from the concept, the modern concept of engagement, in first century Jewish culture, this phase between a couple's commitment to be married and the actual wedding, that phase was called betrothal. They were betrothed to one another. And it's a little bit different than engagement. In this time, even though the, um, in this time, the woman would still live in her parents' house, and yet the betrothed couple was actually legally bound to one another, right? They were considered, would even use the words, husband and wife, though they would not have yet been physically intimate. That would only come on the, the wedding night. In fact, the, the tradition in Galilee, where Mary and Joseph lived, was that a betrothed couple would have never even been allowed to be alone at all for a minute before the actual wedding night. So when Matthew says that they hadn't been intimate, he knows what he's talking about, right? The culture was strictly policing this stuff. And yet, verse 18 says that before Mary and Joseph came together, she was found to be pregnant. There's a modern Bible translation known as the voice that puts this plainly when it comments. And this is remarkable because Mary had never, has never had sex. But somehow I doubt the word remarkable was the first thought to enter Joseph's mind. Our text goes on to explain that she'd become pregnant miraculously by the Holy Spirit. But Joseph doesn't know that. He can even imagine Mary trying to tell him. He said, well, who is this Holy Spirit guy, all right? Let me at him. <laughs> From Joseph's perspective, the only possible explanation, right, was that Mary had been unfaithful to their engagement and had had sex with another man. So for us to say that Joseph finds himself in a challenging statement here would be kind of an understatement. In fact, just consider for a moment, if you could, what what Joseph must have been feeling when he found out, right? What would any of us have been feeling, given the facts that he knew? Imagine his devastation. I recently read somebody say that the foundation of all hurt is expectation. Well, you think Joseph expected something like this when Mary had pledged to wed him months before? 
So imagine his devastation. Imagine his anger. Right? No doubt, I mean, no doubt Joseph's mind would have begun to wonder, you know, what man in our village has done this thing? Right? And now imagine how you might be inclined to respond if you found yourself in Joseph's shoes. What would you do, just knowing yourself? How would you respond? Well, verse 19 says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. See, because Joseph can only assume Mary's broken their engagement, according to the Jewish law, he has to dismiss her, right? The betrothal has to be called off. And since betrothals were legally binding, it actually took a divorce to do so. And Joseph would have been justified, as many people did in those days, to divorce Mary publicly before a judge. But this would have caused great shame for Mary because it would have made it public knowledge in their village that Mary is an adulteress. But Joseph chooses instead to respond in a manner that is still most loving to Mary, to separate her from her quietly. So it's not just that Joseph doesn't respond in vengeance or in jealousy, right? His plan both reflects a serious commitment to God's commands, but also an understanding that God's commands and truth are only applied righteously when they are applied, when they are carried out in love, right? Joseph clearly takes that seriously. But in order for Joseph to get there, to get to that place where this is how he's going to handle it, it was critical that he had not reacted impulsively. It was critical that he had waited to respond. The Greek, in verse 20, the Greek that begins that verse says that Joseph had, had inwardly deliberated to get to this place of what he was going to do. Joseph had to be willing to live in the tension that this situation surely would have brought about for him. He had to be willing to process and feel the different emotions that came up so that those, he wouldn't act in those emotions. To feel the anger so he wouldn't act in the anger, Right? He had to go through all of that in order to get to this more sober place. And no doubt, all of this required prayer as well. But as I read this, I can't help but question whether this is what I would have done. I mean, if I'm honest, right? Let me take some time to deliberate about this. I don't think so, right? I don't own a gun, but I'd be looking for one, right? The impulse to be reactive. Too often in our sin, we'd rather resolve the tensions that we feel to try to reassert control, even if it means harm, and even if it makes a difficult situation much, much worse. But the good news is that God wants to instill in us a capacity to engage the challenging situations of our daily lives in a manner that is still loving toward others and trusting in, in Him. And yet what may surprise us is that brain science shows we cannot cultivate such character and faith on our own as individuals. 
but only by participating in community joyfully centered upon the story of God revealed in Scripture. We'll get to the brain science in a minute, but as we all know now, it's a darn good thing that Joseph responded with the faith and character he did, isn't it? Because this made it possible for more facts to be revealed to him about the situation, facts that he would have never considered or imagined. But just think about if Joseph had responded in anger or in fear, right? Fear of his reputation or whatever, and divorced Mary quickly and publicly. Or worse, if he had gone after the man he suspected might have cuckled him, cuckolded him, cuckolded him. Right? Any of those responses would have done what? They would have made it impossible for him to fulfill the role God had laid out for him to be the earthly father of the Son of God. <laughs> All right? And he probably wouldn't have even learned about how wrong he'd been about Mary until what? Like final judgment when God was like, hey, you know when you reacted real impulsively on that girl you were engaged to? Yeah, I mean, she, she actually wasn't unfaithful there, Pops, you know? But Joseph's ability to, to live for a little while in tension and to let God resolve it rather than trying to seize control allowed God to bring resolution in a way that Joseph never would have expected, right? Picking up in the middle of verse 20, Matthew says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. In other words, don't be afraid that you're being unfaithful to God by still marrying her. Because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, a name meaning God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. By naming the child Joseph in those days would be legally adopting Jesus as his son. He would have the honor of being the earthly father to the Son of God. And what a gift it would be for young Jesus to have a man like this as his earthly father. Now, there could be only one earthly father of Jesus, right? None of us are going to have that role. Let's hope I'm not breaking news. And yet the scriptures say that each one of us who are followers of Jesus have a part to play, a role in God bringing about his kingdom and being vessels of his love to the world around us, and being salt to the earth, as one scripture says it. Scripture says that, that we have all been consecrated priests in this sense, priests of the kingdom of God by virtue of our baptism. And yet, whether we live into that role or even have the opportunity to discern that role, to discern what part or parts God would have us play, it's not just a foregone conclusion that we will live into it, is it? Just because we were baptized or call ourselves Christians. Actually, our ability to live into it and discern, even discern what it is, probably has a lot to do with whether we go through life living reactively to situations or looking to Him, responding slowly, living in tension, waiting for more to be revealed. 
the good news is God wants to instill this capacity in us. Micro, the capacity for micro-waiting. Y'all aren't going to let me live that one down, are you? Micro-waiting. The capacity to engage the challenging situations of our daily lives in a manner that's still loving toward others and trusting in God. But as I've been saying, what may surprise us is that brain science shows we cannot cultivate such character and faith on our own, solo. Only We can only cultivate it by participating in a community joyfully centered upon the story of God revealed in Scripture. So in Joseph, we see these enormous benefits of living with the sort of faith and character that he does. So we, it's natural that we would want to live that way too, I hope. But the way we attain that sort of character and faith that's capable of living in tensions like he does, it doesn't come the way we might think or even the way the church might often teach us. Because it doesn't come by trying harder. And it doesn't come by reading our Bible a little bit more. Now, some of you are like, thank goodness. <laughs> some of you are thinking, what? I'm spending all this time doing this? I recently listened to a talk by uh, Michael Hendricks. He's a pastor who studies how the findings of brain science relate to spiritual formation. Now, all of us have probably heard how there's two sides of our brains that have sort of different characteristics and functions, right? There's the left brain and the right brain. Well, what we tend to think of as the brain as a whole, frankly, kind of in the pop culture sense, is actually just the left side of our brain, right? That's where our thinking occurs, our problem solving, our cognitive abilities, our, our conscious will is exercised from the left side of our brain. So that's what, when, when you say brain in the 21st century, that's kind of what people think of, the, the mind, right? That's the left side of our brain. But the right side of our brain is our relational brain. And it is completely nonverbal. It's focused on things like, who is happy to be with me? What are my deepest attachments right now? Is this place that I'm in, in this situation, social situation, is this an emotionally safe place? Or is it an unsafe place? That's what the right side of our brain is concerned with. And this is significant because all of the input that comes into our brain, like through our senses, you know, what we hear, what we see, so forth, it comes into the right side of our brains first. It comes into the back side, the back of the right side of our brains. And then it travels to the front of the right side and then across our eyes to the front of the left side, getting into our cognitive brain, and then to the back left side. And what this means is that before we ever react to something that happens, that we perceive happening, before we ever react to it cognitively, or could, be, could explain what's going on verbally, the right side of our brain has already reacted. It's already reacted. 
Right? The train's out of the station. Well, this right side of, of our brain is where our sense of group identity is formed. And it's also where our character, our character is formed and processed. So how does this work? Well, whatever my deepest sense of identity is, not even what I think it is, but what it actually is, is... <laughs> Whether it's that I'm a Roberts, or I'm an American, or I'm a Christian, or I'm a child of God, or all the different sorts of identities that we could kind of have most deeply in us, whatever that is in our subconscious, the right side of my brain is constantly cycling. They say it six times a second, asking itself, who are we as a people? What is my group identity, and how would we, my group, act in this situation? Who are we as a people, and how do we act in a situation like whatever's transpiring before you? So that's how our character comes out. Well, Hendricks explains that one of the problems with the way the church tends to disciple people is it is almost entirely left-brained, right? The church is teaching people to read Scripture over and over, which is great, Right? Or teaching them how to teaching us how to exercise willpower in strategic ways. For example, some of you may remember a fad among some Christians, at least back in the day. What is this? The '90s, the early aughts? I don't know. This fad was to wear a bracelet, a bracelet that said WWJD. Right? Now, what does that mean? What would Jesus do? Great. I mean, it wasn't the most aesthetically attractive jewelry, but like, I get it. Great. <laughs> Why were these worn? Well, these were worn as a reminder to try, to try to act like we think Jesus would when a difficult situation arises, right? The spirit of them is great. The problem with them, as Hendricks pointed out, the problem with this strategy is that by the time we could ever look at a bracelet on our wrist as a reminder, our character's already come out. We've already reacted. Our right brain, that ship had sailed, right? I, I can actually even remember thinking like, optimistically, like, oh, this could be really good, and then thinking like, you know, what's going to happen? Somebody walks up to you and slaps you in the face. Are you going to go, love you, bro? No, right? That's, I mean, that's a great ideal. It's just it doesn't work that way, right? We've already reacted, right? Our character determines how we react in that situation from our nonverbal right brain, right? So, for example, to... The ability to be slow to speak and quick to listen, which is scriptural from James, right? That is a right brain function. That is not something that our left brain, that happens in our left brain. It's a right brain function, right? It's an impulse. Attempting to love our enemies. That puts more stress on the makeup of our right brain than our left brain, right? We can know we're supposed to love our enemies all the time. But our right brain's been trained in a lot of life experience that says that person looks different from me, is trying to get what I got, and I'm going to fight them for it, right? Or they're going down or whatever, right? 
So what do we do? The point of this sermon is not hopelessness. <laughs> what, do we want to, what do we do if we want to begin to engage situations more like Jesus would? And we've decided that the bracelet may not cut it. What we need is we need our right brain to be trained even more than our left. I mean, both is good. I'm not saying be a right brain Christian, right? But, but that part that the church and spiritual disciplines don't often address is what needs to be addressed. And the key way this is done is through developing deep level attachments in the community of a church that is at least a healthy enough church that is characterized more by joy than by fear. Lord, I hope our church is, but maybe it hasn't always been, or maybe it isn't always, right? Too often in America, churches are, not, are defined not by joy, but by fear, right? By, by engaging in culture wars rather than learning to live in the kingdom. They define themselves by what they're against instead of what they're for, right? So it's important to find a church where, that is characterized by joy. And if you don't feel like this one is, I want to know. <laughs> Let's talk about it, right? But even if, let's say that our parish is more joyful than fearful, right? that's important for our identity and character to have even a chance of being healthy. If we're in a fear-based church, right, then we're being trained to hate our enemy, I mean, constantly. So, or if we, you know, if our TV channel is all about making money off of our fear, that's what's discipling us, Right? So even, though, even if our church, our parish, is more joyful than fearful, that's important. But Hendricks suggests that Sunday morning acquaintances and connections really aren't enough, though. Right? Instead, for our character and our group identity to really begin to transform, you know, seeing people kind of as acquaintances an hour on Sunday, even friends, isn't really going to do it, isn't going to move the needle enough for there to be transformation. He says what we need is to develop deep, bonded relationships that go beyond that with other Christians. Right? And seeking it out on, you know, you can't get that on social media either, right? We can talk all about our faith and virtue signal, do all that on social media, but we're not developing deep bonds with people that way. Not that it's bad. We just got to say it's limited, right? Hendricks says that in particular, we need to cultivate relationships with people whom we can go so far as to share our fears with and to share our weaknesses. Do you have anybody in your life? Do you have any community you can share your deepest fears with that come up? Because those are the obstacles to God's Christ transformation. Those are the things that got to be verbalized and and surrendered? Anybody who you can be honest with about your weaknesses, about your doubts, about your struggles. So Hendrick says we got to cultivate relationships where we can do that and where relationships where people will offer healthy correction to us when we're wrong. Now that's different from toxic correction, which is most of the correction we receive in this world. Right, and we could talk more about what that is, toxic or fear-based correction. But most relationships in church world, we just, there's just never any correction at all. Right? We don't open ourselves up to it. 
Nobody's, nobody's really opening up to that, right? And so we kind of stay the same, and we, our right brain keeps doing what it's been doing since whenever, right? Hendricks explains, though, if we manage to develop long-term, deep-bonded relationships, what this does for our, from a neuroscience standpoint is it begins to form a sense of, of group identity in our, in our brain. And thus, it, it, it forms and changes our character so that subconsciously, again, this isn't conscious, our brain is saying, not what would Jesus do in this moment, but what would my Jesus people do in this moment? What would my community, my deepest connections do in this moment? Whatever I, I identify with. Now again, and I'll wrap up here in a second, this isn't to say we're supposed to become right-brained Christians, Right? Actually, our left brain's very important as well. But our left brains are better at cleaning up messes than controlling our responses in difficult situations, right? So when our right brain responds poorly to a situation, our left brains come online a little bit slower, a little bit later, right? You, remember, you think about it, you walk away from that and you're like, yeah, did I just do that? Did I, did I just say that? Yeah, that was wrong. Right? Your left brain says, hey, you got to go make that, right. make that right. That's what our left brain's good at, at cleaning up messes, at, see, at repenting, at seeking forgiveness based on the truth, right? It's a cognitive act of our will. But that's not enough, Right? I mean, often, even if we go back and they forgive us for the wrong we did, the damage is still done, right? And sometimes with great consequence, right? If Joseph had responded reactively and divorced Mary publicly or went and accused somebody of sleeping with her or whatever next door, he could then go back and, and apologize to Mary all he wanted for that, right? So sorry, so sorry, so sorry, but the horse would be out of the barn. She would forever be known in her community as an adulterer, which in that day and age was bad news, right? Her life would be never the same. Jesus, this miraculous son she would have, would be known as, I don't know, whatever swear words you would call that, right? The good news, though, is that God wants to instill in us a capacity to engage the challenging situations in our daily lives in a manner that is still loving toward others and trusting in God. But brain science shows we can't cultivate such character on our own, but only by participating in a community joyfully centered upon the story of God revealed in Scripture. But doesn't that sound attractive? Doesn't it sound like something we want? Does it make sense why sort of a superficial engagement with other Christians is insufficient for helping us with this? Right? Again, it's not that it's wrong. It's just that we need more, that we need to open ourselves up to more than that. I wonder who here among us is willing to seek that out in your life. 
to treat that as something, the pearl of great price, that's worth risking for. Because it is risk. To open up to people, that's risky. Right? That takes courage. Right? Courage is just fear that said its prayers, though. Right? Can you see the vision of the blessing that there is to be had in taking such risks? Will we ask God to show us how we can foster deeper, more vulnerable connections with some fellow believers? We need one another. But are we willing to learn to let each other in? I invite you to stand as the net comes up and we respond with our response hymn, We Are a Second Family, found in your bullet.
Please sit or kneel as you are able for the prayers of the people. Our prayers of the people this morning have been customized around the theme of today's sermon. Please respond as normal to Lord in your mercy with hear our prayer. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Heavenly Father, bless our leaders, all bishops, priests and deacons, especially our Archbishop Foley, our Bishop Eric, and our priests, Fathers John and Jim, with wisdom, long-suffering and endurance, that they may be shining examples of patiently awaiting your will and opening all our hearts and minds to the inward working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And guide us all as your people to seek unity in faith, in love, and in the common cause of building up your kingdom by loving you, our God, and all your creation. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Father, grant us that gift of the Holy Spirit of joy, that we may always have a reason for the Christian hope, the hope of resurrection and the life of the age to come that is in us. Amidst a world of burnout and endless distraction, cultivate in us hearts to seek your still, small voice in the wilderness of quiet. Lord, in your mercy. Always we are trust in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy and plenteous redemption. We bring before you, O Lord, the leaders of our state, our nation, and our town, our President Joe Biden, our Governor Gavin Newsom, and our Mayor Sherilyn Bayros, that with many vital and society-changing decisions being made, that those you have appointed in civil authority for our health and well-being may embrace their calling to safeguard life, to promote the common good, and to stay the hand of evil, and that they may do so by ever looking to you for guidance. May their decisions be guided by your spirit of order and not of chaos. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. With the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Lord, we pray for the peoples of this earth as we face illness and disease, suffering, pain and death that your people in their sufferings would always be looking for that great day when you will come again and bring the light of your saving truth to all around us. In the midst of the difficulties of life, we thank you for the joys that you bring and ask that you would be pleased to meet the needs of those we know and those in our town of Oakdale, the poor, the lonely, the marginalized, the misunderstood, the lost and confused, that your people would be inspired to boldly and fearlessly serve and pray with those whom society rejects, patiently sacrificing for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, in your mercy. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Father, we bring before you all we know and all throughout the world who at this time suffer in mind, body or spirit, asking for healing grace according to your will and strengthening through time of sickness. And Lord, seeing all our own weaknesses, 
whether they be physical, relational, spiritual or other. May we not despair and give up and hide, but instead lay our anxieties, our griefs and our burdens before our brothers and sisters, confessing them to one another, and before you, the God who grants that peace which passes all understanding. Lord, in your mercy. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with them. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Lord God, as you are at work each and every day in each and every moment, reconciling all your creation to you in Jesus Christ, and as all creation longs for your triumphant return, we give you thanks for the faithful lives of those who have gone before us and all those who have recently died knowing you, for friends and family members who grieve the passing of loved ones. In the tension in which we live between the sufferings of this life and your perfect life to come, Grant us ways to engage the world that honour you and make known your saving love for all in your Son. Lord, in your mercy. In our ACNA provincial cycle of prayer, on this day we pray for the Diocese of the Western Gulf Coast, for Bishop Clark Lowenfield and his wife Tricia. I invite you at this time to add any further petitions, thanksgivings or intercessions, either silently or aloud. <laughs> 